media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. kind of played around a little bit. Sometimes we'll start off the new year with uh, two or three sermons about our vision and kind of casting that vision for the new year. And uh, certainly want to do that in the next couple of weeks as we talk about transformation, the importance of transformation in our lives. But actually, one of the best stories of transformation in the entire Bible is actually in our Mark passage as we would continue on in our study of Mark. And so Mark chapter 5 gives us a... Uh, uh, a time when we can see a life that was kind of totally changed. Now, I know a lot of us are coming off of uh, 2020, and uh, like so many things that uh, happened in 2020, we're ready to say good riddance and goodbye and look at the fresh and the new. And uh, certainly I can understand that. But as we get into the Word of God today, as much as I am ready <clears throat> for uh, the opportunities of the new year, I, I can just, I'm just being transparent with you. In 38 years of ministry, 2020 was the most frustrating. I don't think it was the most difficult, but it was certainly the most frustrating. It feels like we've had our hand on pause for 11 months. And you just want to take your hand off of pause and hit play and fast forward and do some of those things. And your life probably feels the same, but it's been that way in ministry. And I've talked to other buddies and, and just, you know, we're ready to go forward and, and just do things, you know, here within our, our uh, church, within our community and make much of Christ. And so we're ready to say good riddance to that and kind of get on to the next stage. And uh, as we look at this man that is described in Mark chapter 5, uh, he's also ready to get past his old life. And so uh, I want you to be aware that there's going to be a little twist in the story. Now, you may have read this. You may be very familiar with that twist that comes at the end. But to me, it really does kind of fit this whole mentality of, hey, just be done with 2020. And yet we might find, if you look at your life, that in some of the most challenging of times, the most difficult times, is actually when most transformation kind of happened in your heart and your mind. And so as much as we were ready to get past those things, those were the things that God used in our sanctification to draw us close to him, to make us more like Christ. More chapter 5, one of the strangest stories in all the Bible. You have a demon-possessed man who lives in a graveyard, runs around naked, uh, cannot be bound. He doesn't really have friends that can get close to him because he's kind of out of his mind because of, of all this. Uh, another part of the story is you have 2,000 pigs that uh, are going to run off the, a cliff into the sea and die. I mean, if I told you that and I began to tell you, hey, yesterday I saw this guy in the graveyard running around naked, screaming and howling like a wolf or something like that, you would probably want to hear the rest of the story. Okay, What's up with this guy? If I told you a story about how 2,000 pigs ran off a cliff into the ocean and drowned, you would probably want to hear the rest of that story. So we go to Mark chapter 5, and we find out the rest of this story. The setting is this. If, if Mark is telling a chronological account, and we have every belie- uh, reason to believe that he is, uh, last time when we met, probably six weeks ago when we were still in Mark, Remember, this is when they were crossing over the sea to get some rest. 
the ministry is really amped up. Everything is going really big. People are thronging upon Jesus. And remember that he has to kind of even has an exit plan. He has to preach from the boat a lot of times because the people were, as the Bible said, pressing upon him. And so they're really kind of sitting across the sea there, kind of to get a little bit of R&R, just kind of get away, to to have some rest. And if you remember that story back in chapter 4, that's when this sudden storm comes up. And the disciples, even though they've seen every one of these miracles of Christ, they've seen the power of Christ, they were disturbed. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And then he calms the sea and he calms the wind. And we see that they had, along with that Magos fear, all of a sudden they have this Magos wonder about God. Who is this that can calm the storms with just his words? And so even the disciples are learning there. If this is in chronological order, this is happening as they reach the other side. Now, why did they go to the other side? Why were they kind of heading out of you know, the Galilean ministry over to the other side? A little bit of R&R. Read chapter, uh, look at verse 1 and 2, or verse 2 there, and see if this is your description of a little bit of R&R. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Uh, One of Mark's favorite words, immediately. Mark uses it more than anybody else in the whole Bible. Everything is rapid pace with Mark. And immediately he describes, okay, they land on shore, and before they can even probably anchor the boat, even get it kind of pulled up on the shoreline, this man comes running at them. Now, it doesn't tell us all in this particular verse, but this is actually, if we go to Matthew's gospel, if we went to Luke's gospel, we find a little bit more of the story and the description of this man. We find out that this man... It's not your typical neighbor. Or I hope he's not your typical neighbor. If he's your typical neighbor, you probably need to move, okay? Because this guy is just, you know, he he just, it's hard to describe him. So let's let the Bible describe him. Verse 3 through 5. He lived among the tombs, in other words, the graveyard. And no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. And the word there is that he's this shriek. It's not like just, hey. He's not just trying to listen for his echo. This is a shriek. It's a deranged kind of sound is the word that is used here. And... He's abusing himself. He's cutting himself with stones. So four things that the Bible tells us about this man right here. He lives in a graveyard. He's uncontrollable. They've tried to help him. They've tried to control him. They've tried to chain him, probably for his own protection. And yet he breaks the chains. He's crying out, literally in the Greek, a shriek, a croak. And he cuts himself. And for good measure, the Luke's gospel says that he runs around naked, that he's without clothing. So I don't know that I really want you to paint that picture in your mind, but but all of a sudden, you know, this is what Jesus runs into. They're getting away for a little R&R. They're just going to the other side for a little bit of break uh, in ministry. And all of a sudden, this guy comes running toward them. And when you see this guy, he truly is this picture of devastation. He's this picture of, in every human aspect of our making and our fiber, 
He is broken. He is in a point of devastation. God made us four different ways. In the wonder of humanity, he made us spiritual beings. He made us physical beings. We have a body. He made us social beings. That is, we have a mind to, to exist with other people. And he's made us very much mental and emotional. He's given us emotions and, and a, a thinking process. So we have all these different parts about us that make up humanity. This wonder of what God created. And every part of God's creation here, of how God created him, is broken, is devastated. Every part, you can't point to a, a, a part of this guy's life and say, well, you know, he's got this, 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 but at least he's got this. You really can't find one of those aspects of life, one of these aspects of who we are in our humanity that's not devastated, that's not somehow uh, just feeling the weight of both sin and the fallenness of this world. Mentally, he goes around and he's howling like an animal. He's self-destructive. Socially, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, in its story of this same story, said that people couldn't even pass by. So he kind of has this violent side of him. Uh, physically, again, they try to bind him for his own uh, you know, good, and, and they're not able to do that. And spiritually, we see that he is demon-possessed. If this guy could be a year, he would be the year 2020. Okay. It's just, it's broken. Just not right. But look what happens in verse 6 and 7. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, this is the part that can freak a lot of people out. A lot of people go, you know, aren't we kind of past the whole demonic thing? Folks, let me give you my theology of, of demons and angels and all that. It's in the Bible. It's true, okay? I don't think that we're going to progress in our you know, knowledge of man that somehow we get... No, it's biblical. There's a spiritual war going on. And, and I, I think it's one of those things that when the Bible says that this man was demon-possessed, that, that he was demon-possessed. I don't think that we have to try to get a side story to kind of come up with some other conclusion. This man was demon-possessed. And we see that this happened often in Jesus' ministry. And so this guy, he's, he's possessed by this demon, and this demon actually cries out. And the demon actually has some pretty good theology <laughs> because he identifies Christ as the Son of the Most High God. I mean, the Jewish people were not claiming Jesus as you know, the son of the most high God. These demons actually have a more description of, uh, more accurate biblically description of Jesus than the Jewish people did. And so look what happens. He has this demon, in fact, demons, we would suspect, because look at verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was the largest company of Roman soldiers, uh, usually five or 6,000. It was the, the biggest uh, kind of uh, way that they would gather. And so we take it by this name that this possibly could be 5,000, 6,000 demons in this man. Now, I don't fully understand how all that works. I just accept it by the truth of God. And yet, in the midst of all of this, they are very much under the authority of Christ. And they realize that. They realize who Christ is, 
They call him son of the most high God. And then look in verse 12. They actually are begging him, saying, send us out to the pigs. Let us enter them. Now, what happened? They sense that Jesus is going to rid this man of the demons. And one of the places that Jesus could have easily cast them is into the abyss, the, the, the final hell, if you want to say that. And they said, no, just cast us into the pigs. They know the torment that is coming. Spurgeon said it this way, isn't it amazing that these demons knew more about the future and were in fear of it than mankind? That here, mankind, this is a future for us. Either we're going to be with God or we're going to be separated from God. And we don't seem to live in fear of it. But even the demons said, do not cast it. We're not ready to go there yet. They know what future is coming to them. And, and so we begin to look at this and we begin to see that uh, they make this, don't send us into you know the abyss, send us to the pigs. And this is where scholars begin to scratch their head. There's a lot of mysteries in the Bible. And sometimes I think that we're uh, actually at a little bit of fault when we try to nail down and say, this is specifically why this happened. Would you believe that sometimes God being God, that sometimes he wants a mystery to remain a mystery? That somehow if it was really important to salvation, if it was important to some aspect of the gospel in our life, I think he would reveal that to us. But there's some things that God just keeps to himself, and there's a reason for it. And maybe only the Son and the Father know Because I don't know why Jesus would grant them kind of what they wanted. But look at verse 13. So he gave them permission. Okay, demons, I'm going to cast you out. You want to go in the pigs instead of the abyss? You temporarily stay here until that final judgment? Jesus actually gives them what they asked for. Some scholars have said, well, is it because... You know, Jesus wanted to uh, show the power in a visual way. We could have done it in a little different ways. The bottom line is, I don't know why Jesus said yes here. But I trust that it's God's purpose. I trust that there's a reason behind it. And I trust that it's sufficient for me not to have to know that if for some reason it just doesn't tell us right out. And it doesn't. So you can scratch your head with all the, the... uh, centuries of theologians who have wondered about that, and you can stand in line with all of them, and one day if it's really, really important, God will tell us. <laughs> but here's what we do know. Verse 13. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. That starts a chain reaction. The herdsmen, that it's their responsibility to make sure that these pigs are taken care of, more than likely the herdsmen were not the owners of the pigs. They were just doing that job, much like shepherds would do that oftentimes for somebody who owned the sheep. And so they have a responsibility, and all of a sudden they kind of fell at their job. What they, These pigs that they were responsible for just run off and, and die and drown in the sea. So what do they do? They go back and tell the owners. Look what happens there. And they came to Jesus and they saw uh, the demon-possessed man and the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in, in his right mind, and they were afraid. The herdsmen go tell the city people, uh, all the townspeople, they come out to see what's going on. Because again, if somebody told you that 2,000 pigs just jumped off a cliff into the sea, would that interest you at all? 
I mean, knowing that back in those days they had very limited entertainment, okay? I mean, that would probably make a lot of people curious, and a lot of people would probably go, what is happening with that? So they come out, and what do they find? Not the pigs. But verse 15 says, they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man. We never are told his name. But can you imagine that the city and the townspeople had a name for him? Small town. Been there forever. Years, maybe decades. Does a reputation get around a small town? Watch out, there goes fill in the blank. I imagine these people were very, very familiar with whatever name they had given him. And I think that it's probably not a super complimentary name. You know, maybe they inferred that he was crazy. Maybe, they, you know, somehow they're identifying this brokenness that he has. And yet, what do they find? Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And what was their reaction? They were afraid. When was the last time that we saw that somebody was really afraid? (laughs) Chapter 4. When the disciples saw the power of Christ. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 14, it says, And they were filled with great fear. Remember, megas phobos. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Folks, we do not have a tame God in that sense. He is a roaring lion, okay? He is powerful beyond description. He's more amazing than we could ever understand. And there's going to be times, even in this life, that we're going to see that demonstration of the power of God. And we're going to just be in awe. And and this great fear is not this fear that, in one way, you want to back off, almost like in Isaiah, when Isaiah goes, I do not belong in the same room with this God. And it wasn't until that purification, until that angel was sent over, and his tongue was purified, and they put it on his tongue, that Isaiah goes, you know, okay, by that purification, by, by God, what God has done, not only do I belong here now, send me. It changes everything. But here they see this work of God, and what does it say? That they were afraid. When people really begin to notice the work of Christ, it's not because of spiritual information that we have, it's because of spiritual transformation. You've heard me say that a lot because I, I really think this is such an important point. Part of the church, part of religion, let me put it in, part of religion, let me use that word, is the more information you have, the better the closer you're going to get to God. You acquire, you know, if you can... I mean, if somebody could stand up right now and start in Genesis and just name all the books of the Bible, we would go, impressive. And we go, man, they must really be close to God because look look at this information that they can just, in, in order, say all the books of the Bible. So one of the dangers, and I'm not saying that information is right. I think we should have a lot of spiritual information, okay? So don't get me wrong. 
But do not count spiritual information on the same level of spiritual transformation. Childlike faith. I promise you, there are some children and childlike adults who have cried out to God that needed God in their lives, and they couldn't quote Genesis to Revelation. They couldn't even name you the four Gospels, and yet they called out to their God, and God saw their need and began to transform their heart and their mind. That's the beauty of God. Again, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not against spiritual information. I I wouldn't be involved in discipleship and all the other things that I I try to involve myself in if I didn't think that somehow spiritual information can have an effect upon our life. But if it remains just information without transformation, we've missed the gospel. We've missed the point. All we've become. I mean, have you ever met somebody that could quote scripture and yet couldn't live it out? I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying it in in an observation way. I've met some people that grew up in the church, and my goodness, I promise you, they know much, much more of the Bible than I do, and just quote it like that. And yet they're living lives apart from the gospel. Again, I don't say that in judgment, but it's just an observation, that somehow spiritual information does not always equal spiritual transformation. If you ask me, Pastor, what do you think is like really the point of the gospel? What is the point? Transformation. I was dead, and he made me alive. I was blind, but now I see. I didn't love, and and now he's teaching me to love. When we go down and just try to amass information, how much information did this guy have? Zero. As far as we can tell, he has zero information. But what would you say about transformation night and day I mean just look at the parallel before he was running around howling now he is sitting before he was naked now how does it describe him clothed before he was deranged and he was possessed now he's in his right mind so much so that the people saw this and whatever name they gave to him oh crazy so and so they were afraid. Well, what, what, what's happened? Folks, that's when people really notice the work of Christ in our life. Not because we can quote all these things and we can come off with all this theological stuff that's important. But if we don't have transformed lives... If I don't start loving my enemy, if I don't start having a heart of sorrow instead of judgment... What work has the gospel done on my life? You see, transformation is the very power of the gospel. Again, we were dead and and made alive. Believe me, we were the deranged ones in aspects of our life. And yet he put us in our right mind. We had areas of our lives that were disturbed and now he's filled with peace. And isn't that what we see in verse 15? We see this amazing transformation. And I've said this many, many times before, but it bears repeating. Don't be surprised if people are not impressed with your spiritual information. As you go to family and friends, don't be impressed if they actually have almost a negative kind of 
you know, thought about that. Oh, you just think you're so much smarter than everybody else. Have you ever heard that? But do not underscore, undervalue whether they say it out loud or not, how a person responds to a life that's truly been transformed. Where before you were hateful and judgmental, and now there's a kindness and a mercy. Not because you went to some self-help class, but because the power of God took out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. The very Spirit of God came in and dwells within you and begins to change the way you think about things. This is the gospel, guys. It's not a set of morality, even though we are to be moral people. But it's an inward-out change. Now look what happens. And this is really kind of uh, that twist that we see at the end of this account. Mark 5, 18. And he was getting the boat. That is, Jesus is getting the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now, let's think through this kind of just in a logical way. If you were known as crazy so-and-so, and everybody knew all this about you, they know that you howled, that you cut yourself, that you did this, that you ran around naked. I mean, when you have this kind of past, how many of you would say, you know, I want a fresh start. I really want to kind of get out of it. Doesn't that make sense? This man's desire makes perfect human sense to me. Hey, take me away from my past. Take me completely away and really give me a new start. And so it's just going to be Jesus going, of course you can. Guys, move some stuff over. Make room for him. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus says no. I mean, have you followed the story? He says yes to demons who want to go into pigs, but this guy says, can I come with you? No. Is this, just, is this a cruel reaction? It's the most loving thing. Why does Jesus say this? Why wouldn't he allow this guy to have a brand new start? To kind of just turn from 2020 to 2021 with all the hope of something that's brand new and it's going to be changed because we can look forward and we can forget the past. Look at verse 20. And he is that this demoniac, former demoniac, this guy who was known to be crazy in the town, went away and began to proclaim. That word proclaim means to herald. It means to announce as a king. And he went away and he began to proclaim, make this herald in the Decapolis. Decapolis was these ten cities that were together. These are uh, Gentile land. This is not where the gospel had been preached. And he begins to herald the gospel in, in this Gentile land how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The man becomes the first missionary to this Gentile land. 
Did they marvel at the amount of information that this guy had? I mean, is he like Wizard of Oz that all of a sudden he gets from the great Oz this information and he can start, you know, rattling off these facts? They said, man, wasn't this? Weren't you? And now you? And they're in awe. Because they can't explain it. What doctor did you see? What, what medical procedure did you have? What medicine did you take? And all the guy can say, Jesus. This is our hope, guys. This is, this, this is the only story we have. Whether you've been this broken, or you've been semi-broken, or you've been just a little bit broken, this is the only hope that we have. Not to gather more information so that our heads can explode with theological truth. And I love theology, and it's important stuff. But I can have a head this big of biblical knowledge, and if I don't have a transformed heart and mind, it is worthless. It's worthless. So my question as we start this new year and this, this year where our year, word is transformation, transform and transformation. Well, what's your story of transformation? What's your story of transformation? Well, over the next couple of weeks, you're going to be able to hear some of our CS folks share their stories. Uh, one day we're going to have a panel up here with several people. Other times it's just going to be like a three-minute little clip of just their transformational story. Because I don't know about you, but I get excited when I hear of transformational stories of people. You know, when I just begin to hear, man, really? I didn't know that about you. But this is, oh, wow. Much more than if somebody stands up there going, okay, let me quote the books of the Bible. (laughs) That's good. I'm not making light of it. I just want to see a transformed life. I hate it, my family. And God has given me a sorrow and a love for my family. And they don't know Christ yet, but I break, my heart is broken over that. I'm not angry at my family. I have broken heart over my family because I want them to know this Christ that has forever changed me. That's transformation. One of the things I was telling Jeff this morning, you have somebody like my wife that was growing up in a Christian home. Praise God that she had Christian parents and was raised in a Christian home. Uh, she was, you know, in church nine months before she was ever born, you know, moment of conception, she's in church already. I mean, she just grew up in the church. And so sometimes people who grow up in the church go, you know, I don't know that I have this story of transformation. You know, I was never at two o'clock in the side gutter over here, not knowing if I would make it to the next day. And we think that somehow because we don't have this great story that had all this fallenness in it, that somehow we weren't completely fallen. And so one of the things I want to do in the next couple of weeks is, is have somebody, my, my wife's not going to do, but, but others like yourselves that said, you know, man, I had the privilege and the blessing of growing up in a Christian home and raised by Christian parents, and yet here's my story of transformation. How he took out this heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh. How he changed the way that I look at things, and he's continuing to transform me day by day. This is our hope. This is our story. This is what we are to make much about. To proclaim in our city how much Jesus has done for us. That's what the scripture says. First missionary in the Decapolis. Oh, crazy Fred. Or whatever his name was. 
and how many people came to know Christ and will be in heaven with us one day because of this story of transformation. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. And Father, I, I pray that, that you would communicate, Father, that spiritual information is good. Father, we are to be students of the word. We are to be uh, students of theology. We are to, to know what we believe. Uh, Father, we are to be deep into apologetics. All those things are good. And yet, Father, if we had all the information with no transformation, Father, then, then how sad that would be. Your gospel has brought us from death to life. From being blind to being people that now can see. And so, Father, as we begin this year, and fathers, we begin to, to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and this call to, to, to truly have a transformed mind, this renewal of the mind. Father, I, I pray that we would grasp what that really means. Father, I pray that uh, this morning that we would think deeply upon what is our story of transformation. Could, could we verbalize to somebody how you have changed our lives forever? If not, Father, I pray that over these next weeks that we would begin to, to construct that story, that we would see, Father, how much we truly, truly need you. And so, Father, we begin this year in hope. We begin this new year in anticipation. But, Father, we begin this new year in proclamation of our great need for you. We need you every hour. Every hour we need you, Father. And we love you and we thank you that you are still transforming lives and families and marriages just like you did to this guy all the way 2,000 years ago. Help us to never lose hope of your ability to transform lives that are broken. We love you and we praise you and we confess that we need you as we pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.